text I'd like to read with you from Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel was writing during the exile. And so the people saw that there was a consequence for their sin. They were cast out of the promised land, which was significant in in and of itself. They were cast out into foreign lands, cast out into places where they were surrounded by the worship of false gods, surrounded by the consequence of worshiping false gods. And that was showing them that the cost of sin, the cost of continued rebellion, means being cast away from the Lord eternally if we don't repent. And so the exile was really a call for them to repent, to turn back to the Lord. And what Ezekiel 36 shows us is God's promise that He was going to restore His people. But it wouldn't be because anything they had earned, anything they had accomplished. It would be because of His grace at work on their behalf and also even within them. And that's a big part of the covenant promise that God has given to us. That He will restore us. Not because we're worthy, not because of what we've accomplished, but because of His grace at work within us. So beginning in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you will never need again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for all your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled, instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. 
Amen. What a glorious promise. Now in Article 34 from our Confession, having revealed to us the significance of the sign and the seal that baptism sets before us, our confession declares, We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. Therefore, we detest the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with the one only baptism they have once received, and moreover condemn the baptism of the infants of believers, who we believe ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as the children of, in Israel formerly were circumcised upon the same promises which are made unto our children. And indeed Christ shed His blood no less for the washing of the children of believers than for adult persons. And therefore they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of that which Christ has done for them, as the Lord commanded in the law that they should be made partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death shortly after they were born, by offering for them a lamb which was a sacrament of Jesus Christ. Moreover, what circumcision was to the Jews, baptism is to our children. And for this reason, St. Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Amen. Beloved people of God in Christ, several times a year, we get to witness a worship service that is a bit different from what is usual. We come together as we always do during those worship services. We sing praise to God like we always do. We pray together, we hear God's law, we confess our sin and rejoice in the forgiveness that comes through Christ. During those services, the scripture readings and the call to worship are on the whole normal. What is different in those services, what makes them stand apart, is a particular ceremony that is injected between our assurance of pardon and our congregational prayer. A ceremony in which the parents, typically of a newborn child, take a solemn vow before God, a solemn yet joyful ceremony which leaves a tiny head dripping with water and an adult with shirt sleeves that are wet. All of that is what's different, what is unusual. But what is it? What is the purpose of this ceremony that we observe? What is the meaning? What is the significance of what we do? These are questions that we need to ask, brothers and sisters. Because unless we ask, and unless we're able to answer, then the ceremony that we incorporate into those worship services really has neither meaning nor purpose. Unless we grasp the significance of the sacrament of baptism, and unless we understand why it's important to those children but also to all of us together. Unless we understand, then really, it's little more than a ceremonial sprinkling of water, a spilling of wetness that has no significance. And that must never be. And that's why in Article 34 of our Confession, 
We are reminded that baptism seals the reality of the relationship that God has bestowed upon us. And so that's what I want to consider with you this evening as we look at the second half of this article in our Confession of Faith. The theme that we confess that baptism seals the reality of our relationship with the Redeemer. And the first aspect of that, that sealing that we consider is how this is a relationship that is given graciously to our children. And yet we need to understand from the outset, and I think we do, that there are many who disagree with this practice of baptizing children. Many claim that it's presumptuous. They admonish us for making a commitment on behalf of our children who are too young to even understand the commitment that's being made. They say that we should wait until that child has come of age and let them decide whether they want to make that commitment, whether they want to make those promises, whether they desire to lead that kind of life. Others say that the baptism of children is simply a wrong use of baptism. They point to Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They point to that and they say, listen, that's what baptism is for. It's part of a conscious, intentional commitment by which we devote ourselves to the Lord. That's what baptism's meant to be and so it really has no right. We have no right to put it on the head of children who can't yet make that commitment, can't yet make those decisions. And as evidence of their claims, they hold out a Bible. And they say, just show me where you find one instance of a baby being baptized. Show me just one and I'll admit that I'm wrong. That's their argument. And give them credit for this. At least they're striving to study Scripture. They're striving to understand in the light of God's Word. We should respect that. But what they fail to see in their study of Scripture is the covenantal character of baptism. They view baptism as an act of individuals. As a sacrament that has significance because of a decision that we make. A declaration that we proclaim before God concerning ourselves. But that's backward. Sacraments are not intended to signify and seal decisions that we have made. We have two sacraments, right? Lord's Supper and Baptism. We're going to see the same thing when we study the Lord's Supper. It's not about what we say to God. It's not about the commitment that we make before God. It's about the commitment God makes to us, the promises He declares to us, the acts He promises on our behalf. The sacraments are not about what we say to God. It's about what God says to us. That was true in the Old Testament of circumcision and Passover. It's true in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's a statement that God says to us, a promise that He makes to us. And it's concerning His covenant. What is our relationship with Christ, our Redeemer? If we ask that question in the light of the whole Bible, not, not in the light of one passage or one phrase or two, 
But starting at Genesis, going all the way to Revelation, if we look and we say, what is our relationship as believers to Jesus Christ? What we're going to find in the light of the whole of Scripture is that our relationship is a covenantal relationship. We talk about this quite a bit in catechism. Kids probably get tired of hearing it. What's a covenant? What is a covenant? What's what's the nature of that relationship? And what we see is a covenant is a relationship between two parties. But they're not equal parties. In the ancient world, a covenant was always an agreement, a relationship between a greater and a lesser party. Imposed by the greater. By which he makes promises to the lesser. I will do this and this and this. And the lesser then has obligations to the greater. I then will do this and this and this. And there are sanctions if the covenant is broken, but there are promises if the covenant is kept. That's what a covenant relationship is. And the covenant that God has established with us, well, it's unique. Because there are no obligations on our side. We're obviously the lesser, but there are no obligations on our side. God takes all the obligations on Himself. He promises what will happen. He promises to accomplish all that is necessary. For our part, all we have to do is receive the promises by faith. And as Ephesians 2 shows us, the faith by which we receive is the faith that we are given. So even the obligation that is set before us, God accomplishes on our behalf. It's an entirely gracious covenant established by God. That's the relationship we have. And that shows us that this covenant is not something that we choose to enter, that we accomplish, that we earn in any way, shape, or form. Our God is the one who chooses. He's the one who decides. He's the one who draws. He's the one who earns. Look at Abraham. Abraham was living as a heathen among heathens. And God said, Abraham, arise. Take your family and all your possessions and go to the place where I have sent you. And I will bless you and I will make you to be a blessing. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed. He trusted. That's all he did. He had faith. And God counted that to him as righteousness. Not because he was righteous, but because God imputed it to him. But God is the one who chose Abraham. God is the one who drew him. God is even the one who gave Abraham that faith. And what ultimately was the promise that he gave to Abraham? We find that promise in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That's the covenant, folks. That's that's the promise that he made to Abraham. He would be his God and the God of his descendants after him and they would be his people. It's a relationship that can be distilled into one little phrase, and yet it signifies so very much. It signifies that God would make peace with Abraham. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham was a heathen. Abraham was an idolater. And yet God would cover over his sin, would restore him to himself. God would provide all of the blessing that Abraham needed 
throughout his life and throughout the life of his children after him and their children and their children until Abraham would have descendants more in number than the stars of heaven or the sand on the seashore. And through his offspring, the nations themselves would be blessed. All of mankind would know blessing because of the promise that came to Abraham. And what did Abraham do to deserve that? Nothing. It was pure grace. And folks, that's the same covenant into which God has incorporated us. To us, he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. You and your descendants after you. It's a covenant of pure grace. Freely He chose us despite our unworthiness. Lovingly He blesses us though we could never hope to repay Him. Mercifully He changes us to free us from our evil ways. That is the essence, the heart, the core of the relationship we have with the Lord. And that covenant promise comes with a sign and a seal. In the Old Testament, it was the sign of circumcision. Circumcision was a sacrament that pointed forward. It said someone's blood must be shed to accomplish this peace, this blessing that I have promised to you. Someone must be cut off that you might be drawn in. Someone must be born and must die that you might have life eternal. Jesus came to fulfill that promise signified in circumcision. He came to do all of that to which it pointed. To make that future hope into a living reality. He fulfilled it. And when he fulfilled circumcision, he abolished it. And in its place, he established a new sacrament. A sacrament of fulfillment. That's why in Matthew 28, as he prepared to ascend to the Father, he said, now the covenant, it doesn't just come to Israel. It comes to people from all the nations. And so you... The apostles, you, the church, signified in you, you are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how they were to be drawn into that covenant. And then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's how they would be brought into this relationship. And so when Peter declared on the day of Pentecost... They asked, how, how can we be restored to God? How can we be delivered from our sin? And Peter answered them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's Genesis 17 verse 7, isn't it? The promise is to you and to your children. What promise? Well, he's talking to a bunch of Jews. He doesn't have to spell out the promise. They understand it. It's that I will be your God and you shall be my people. He tells them the promise is to you and to your children and they say, of course it is. And also to those who are far off whom the Lord our God will call. And they say, what? Because that's the new part. But understand the covenant has not changed. The relationship has not changed. The promises have not changed. It's that I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And you shall be my people. Our confession reminds us Christ has shed His blood no less for the washing of the children of believers than for adult persons. And therefore they ought to receive the sign and the sacrament of that which Christ has done for them. In the Old Testament era, the promise of Christ's sacrifice was given to the children 
also. It was given through circumcision. That was set upon them as a promise that they too were part of God's people. That they too received the promises of the covenant. God says, I will be your God and you will be my child. And through the sacrifices. When a woman gave birth, she was unclean for a time. Depending on whether the child was a male or a female, determined how long that period of uncleanness would last. And then afterward, she was to take the child to the temple or to the tabernacle. And a sacrifice was to be offered. That sacrifice was to show her, this is how you are redeemed. This is how you are cleansed from your impurity and also your child with you. And that sacrifice, that lamb that was slain, it pointed forward to the true lamb, Christ. You see, from the very start, children have had a part in God's covenant of grace. To them came all the promises that were extended to their parents. When God promised to extend or to provide redemption to, for Adam's sin, He promised it would come through the child of Eve. Right? And so we see that line of covenant succession in Genesis 5 that shows how the promises were received by and celebrated by generation after generation. Fathers to their children, to their children, to their children after them received those promises and celebrated them and lived before God in them. When Abraham was called to receive God's covenant promise, the Lord declared it was for him and for his descendants. And so Isaac when he had two children, Jacob and Esau, they both were regarded as covenant children. They both received the sign and seal of circumcision. And even though Esau later broke that covenant, think about that, he broke the covenant. He didn't live in faith before God. But he had to be in the covenant to break it. When Moses taught Israel about God's law, how often, how often in those first five books of the Bible does he point them to their children? Teach your children. Answer the questions of your children. Raise up your children in the knowledge of God and of His Word. Because He is their God. Among the most foundational of those promises was the assurance of atonement through the Lamb. That's the second thing we see in this, in this portion of our confession. The assurance of atonement by the Lamb. Think again back to that circumcision, that sacrament of circumcision. It was a bloody sign to show them that blood had to be shed if they were to be restored. Because they were sinners. Whether they were adults coming into Israel or children born into Israel, they were sinners. They needed to be cleansed. They needed to be reconciled to God. And that had to happen by the shedding of blood. Circumcision pointed forward to Christ and showed that their atonement would not be something they accomplished, but something accomplished for them. That's why God specified, on the eighth day this shall be done. Because at eight days old, they couldn't request it, they couldn't refuse it. All they could do was passively receive. And there's a lesson in that. Just as there's a lesson in the baptism of one of our children who is so young that they, all they can do is lay there in their parents' arms. It's because we are passive when God calls us. He chooses 
what family you will be born into. He chooses what message you will hear. And He chooses when the Holy Spirit will work in your heart to draw you by faith to receive those promises that have been set upon your head. When Jesus came, He fulfilled all that circumcision taught. He was cut off from the presence of God that we might enter in. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By the shedding of His blood, our sins were forgiven and not ours only. He atoned for all the members of the covenant on behalf of all who received the promise by faith, truly believing and trusting the promises laid upon them. For all of them He hung on the cross. He was rejected by the Father. He suffered the very torments of hell. Enduring this, He fulfilled the promises that we heard in Ezekiel 36. I will deliver you from all of your uncleannesses. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. That's why Jesus came, isn't it? So that we might be cleansed, so that we might be reconciled to God and not that only. Also, He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. All of that Jesus was accomplishing for us. And notice... The promise says that we will be passive. We will receive what God has given. We will receive what someone else has accomplished on our behalf. That's what our children are promised. That's what every one of us has been promised. The assurance of atonement by the Lamb. But kids, what do you have to do about that? You've been baptized. You've received those promises. The promise that that you have that relationship with God. The promise that Christ died to atone for your sins. Now, Now what? Now what? Well, what were the Jews supposed to do with their circumcision? To the Jews of old, circumcision was incorporation into Israel. It meant that you were a part of the people whom God had chosen. That you were one of those whom God chose for Himself. And with that promise came obligations. Not obligations that would earn anything, but obligations that would show that you were part of Israel, right? So if you were a male who had been circumcised, you were expected to go up to the tabernacle or to the temple three times a year to engage in the the feasts that God had commanded. You were required to tithe of that which God had given to you to demonstrate your gratitude to God and your faith in God. You were expected to raise up your children to know the Lord, which means circumcising them, teaching them the law, explaining to them who God is and what He had done, doing what we sang about in Psalm 78, teaching the children what we've seen of God's acts. You were called to live before God as one of His people that all that you did might point to Him. And it wasn't merely to be about your exterior, your external acts. 
That's what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. He says, oh, you tithe of your mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You neglect love and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these things you should have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, doing what God commands isn't unimportant. But what's even more important is desiring to honor God, desiring to love the Lord within your heart. Paul wrote in Romans 2, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit. To a true Israelite then, circumcision was the mark of who he was in his deepest state. It identified the past to which he belonged, the promises that had been laid upon him, but also the future which he was promised. That God would always be his God, that God would continue to provide for him and for his children after him, and that he would know eternal life in the resurrection. And so he was called to receive that by faith. To live in the light of those promises. To, to obey God's law. Not to earn anything but to show that he belonged to the Lord. And that everything in him was to serve God. Are we called to anything less? Ezekiel 36, the promises there were the promises of the covenant. Verse 28 says... You shall be my people and I will be your God. Where did we hear that? We heard it spoken in Genesis 17. We heard it alluded to in Acts 2. It's the very same covenant. It's the very same promises. And so when he says to them, I will put a new heart in you. I will lay my spirit upon you. That's the promise that he gave to Israel of old. And it's the promise he gives to us. And with that promise comes the calling. Receive this covenant promise. By faith, a faith that lives, a faith that acts, a faith that breathes. Children, that is how you are to receive your baptism. The same way a Jew of old received his circumcision. You are to receive it by a living faith that reveals itself by obeying the Lord, by loving the Lord, by showing the world that you belong to the Lord. And that lays a massive obligation on all of us. Because you see, we're not individuals. Baptism, I keep pointing at the font because that's what we think of with baptism. We think of seeing it. But when you're baptized, you are brought into the people of God. You are brought into the body of Christ. That is a demonstration that you no longer stand as an individual. You have now been grafted in to the body of Christ. Christ is the head and you are all members. Some are a finger, some are a knee, some are a, an appendix. We all have different roles within the people of God, but we are all essential to the people of God, which means it is our calling, all of us, to nurture everyone. That means whether you're a parent or a grandparent or somebody who has no children whatsoever, you are called to nurture those children among us. When you see one of them going astray, doing what they ought not to do, your calling is not to just shake your head. No, no, no. Your calling is to come alongside of that person, that young person. Put your arm around them and say, I love you. You're part of the church. And by the way, what you're doing isn't right. I think I get why you're doing it. But let's talk. I want to talk to you about how important it is that you live as one of God's people. 
when you see that, that person who seems like they stand on the fringe, they head out the door as soon as they, the word amen is spoken. Your calling is to get them in your house so that they realize that they are important to the body of Christ, that they belong to us. And when you see that there's an event happening in the church, you invite them. Call them up personally. Say, hey, I'd like to see you there. You know, come to the fellowship meal. Don't bother to bring food. I'll bring extra for you. I just want to see you there because we love you. And when they haven't shown up for a couple weeks, or there's some change in their life and suddenly they're absent, you go knock on their door. You seek them out as fervently as you would seek out a part of your body that's cut off. And you need to pray for them. Sometimes we just know that something's going on in the life of somebody in the congregation. We're not sure what and we don't want to pry. But you can pray. You can pray that God would would bless them with all that they need and that God would put in their path the person they need to speak to and that God would reveal to you how perhaps you can be of help to them and then watch, look, because God loves to answer those prayers. But we have an obligation to one another because we've been baptized into that body and as they grow up, as they mature, remind them of the importance of showing their maturity. Parents, that's not just about Saying, you know, you're 16, you should be thinking about making profession of faith. Well, yeah, they should. But don't stop with that. Hey, you got your first job. Don't forget to tithe. Don't forget to show your gratitude to God and your confidence in Him who provides all that you need by tithing of what He has given to you. Show them that. Urge them about that. And when they, when they get that first job, say, hey, don't forget... We're called to worship God first. So you put Him first. If anything in your job calls you to, to neglect God's commands or to do what He commands you not to do, you put God first. Teach them. Talk to them about what they're learning in school and incorporate that into Scripture. Ask them, how does that fit with what God says here and what God says there? You think maybe you're not up to that? Then pray that God would make you up to that. But we have a calling to raise up these children to live in the light of their baptism, to live as those who have been called to be the children of God. And yes, sometimes they go astray. Sometimes they reject those promises. It's not an automatic thing. Just because your head got wet one time doesn't mean that you're going to be saved eternally. We have to receive those promises by faith. Young people, you know that, right? But our calling is to be the instruments God uses to draw them into that faith. And if we do so prayerfully, if we do so lovingly, if we do so in confidence that God will use us, guess what? He will. This is a relationship, this relationship into which we're baptized, this is a relationship that commands commitment from us all. The point of all this, brothers and sisters, is that we have been brought into a relationship that's all-encompassing. It doesn't simply mean that our name's on a roll somewhere, that our name's on a list, that the elders will show up once a, a year. No. 
When we're baptized, we are brought into a relationship with God that assures us that He has taken notice of us. He has set His promise on us. He has promised us atonement. And now He calls us to respond, to live all of our life in the light of what He has said about us. So may God lead each one of us to contemplate the significance of that sign and seal that He has given to us. And may He lead us not only to take seriously our own baptism, but also our calling with regard to all those who have been baptized. And may God be blessed as we take that seriously and as we seek His guidance and His blessing to use the baptism He's given. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, You are so very faithful to us. The promises You've given to us are greater than anything this world could offer, could present to us. Grant that we might not take lightly those promises. But instead, Lord, teach us to cherish what You have said about us. Teach us to delight in the assurance of the forgiveness of sins that You have set before us. And Lord, make us to be earnest about our faith toward You and about our calling toward one another. And so, Lord, build up, strengthen, and mature this congregation of saints. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.